and welcome to this Forum for Philosophy event at the LSE. My name is Danielle Sands and I'm a fellow at the Forum. I'm going to be chairing this evening's event, which is the first in our Histories of Thinking series. Accounts of the history of philosophy become so familiar that we forget that they are limited and partial, yet they determine our perception of what counts as philosophical inquiry or knowledge. Which kinds of wisdom are excluded from traditional histories of philosophy? What modes of thought or expression have been neglected or deemed irrational? Whose interests are served by the prevailing accounts? In this event, we will interrogate familiar narratives of philosophical history and explore more diverse, plural, and sometimes contradictory accounts of philosophical thought. Let me introduce our speakers. Julia Ng is co-director of the Center for Philosophy and Critical Thought at Goldsmiths. She specializes in the links between modern mathematics, political thought, and theories of history and language in the 20th century, particularly in the work of Walter Benjamin. Jonathan Ray is a philosopher, historian, and writer, formerly professor of philosophy at Middlesex University. He is the author most recently of Witcraft, the Invention of Philosophy in English, which was published in 2019. And Justin E.H. Smith is professor of philosophy at the University of Paris and is a writer and translator. His most recent book is Irrationality, A History of the Dark Side of Reason, which was published in 2019. Jonathan, perhaps we could start with you with a small question. Uh, when and how was philosophy invented? Wow, well, invention is a rather wonderful word. I, I suppose, I mean, the, the smart answer would be whenever philosophy happens as philosophy, it is being invented anew because Philosophy is about taking your thought away from the beaten track. It's about thinking in new ways. It's about realizing how boring your customary ways of thinking are. So in a sense, philosophy is always invention. But I suspect that's not really the sort of answer you, um, you expected of me. The obvious answer, which anybody educated in philosophy in the last 300 years would have given you, would be philosophy was invented in ancient Greece in the generation before Plato and Aristotle. And I think that this is, it's so familiar to us, but I think it's so, it really does mischief to our philosophical thinking. It's worth, worth remembering in the first place that but we tend to think of traditions as, as like the past influencing us and pushing us forward. But I think a much better way of thinking of them is that traditions are things that we choose by saying what sort of past is going to be useful to us in the light of the future that we want. So we're not passive in relation to tradition, we create traditions. And when this idea of ancient Greece as the origin of philosophy, well, this idea really came, didn't come into existence until the 17th century. Before that, of course, people knew about Plato and Aristotle and Cicero, but they thought of philosophy as, if you like, a closed event. It was something that had come to an end in the, I don't know, 200 AD or something like that. And, you know, the list of philosophers was closed. And you could, back, you know, it's a bit like Greek tragedy. You can't have a, write a new Greek tragedy because you're not Greek. You couldn't write philosophy because you're not Greek. And to study philosophy was to study this closed set. But it was only in the 17th century that people started to think that there could be something which they called modern philosophy, which they contrasted with ancient philosophy. And then there was an intermediate category called middle age philosophy. And that's what that, that's lumbered with, with this story that we keep telling ourselves. And I think a terrible amount of what is pumped into people's heads as their students of philosophy is this story, which I think is disastrous in so many ways, partly because it quenches people's enthusiasm for thinking anew, but also because it makes us think of the history of philosophy as, well, as a history, not of individuals struggling 
to make sense of their lives, but as a history of systems that are getting passed down from generation to generation. There's a very interesting passage in Hegel's lectures on the history of philosophy, where he says that histories of philosophy are quite unlike histories of art. Histories of art are about individual works that have been arbitrarily formed by individual artists. But history of philosophy is not about individual works. It's all about one thing, because all philosophers have been engaged in the same thing, namely wondering what being is. And so anything that's in their work that doesn't, that can't be fitted on this map of Hegel's map of the different forms of understanding of being didn't really belong there. So, I mean, you could say that the, the history of philosophy in Hegel and since has been a discipline that gives you a set of categories for analysing philosophies. And then you go through the history of philosophy, a bit like a bird spotter, saying, oh, there's an idealist, there's a materialist, without thinking that these categories are themselves the product of a particular philosophical moment, particularly of Hegel's philosophical moment. I think we need to get back from this false invention of philosophy to reinventing it for ourselves. Thanks, Jonathan. I like this idea that we've been sort of lumbered with this history and we need to perhaps unthink it or unpick it in, in different sorts of ways. Um, Justin, I wonder if you, you'd like to come in. <laughs> I should start by saying I, I largely agree with Jonathan on a number of points, particularly that Hegel is an important dividing line between two uh, very different conceptions of what the history of philosophy might be. If we look at the early attempts at historiography, of philosophy in the 17th and 18th centuries, one person who interests me is Johann Jakob Brücker, who's writing a critical history of philosophy, I think in 1755. He starts with several chapters on such themes as Druid philosophy, which is to say the presumably the religious rites of the ancient Celts. And for him, this isn't a courtesy tack on, it's a sincerely a part of what he takes philosophy to be, along with the other branches of what might be called as a more generic term, barbarian philosophy. This is something in Pierre Gassendi, writing in the 17th century. He makes a lot of the importance of Anacharsis the Scythian among ancient philosophers as someone who shows that all peoples have philosophy within them. And I think, I don't want to dwell on Hegel or take Hegel as a kind of straw man, but what happens with Hegel effectively is that Hegel insists on the point that philosophy is necessarily unbound to other cultural forms like dance or myth or uh, song or religious rites, so that by that criterion, uh, there is only a singular miracle in the history of humanity, the Greek miracle, because the Persians and everyone else might have had some kind of practice of contemplating abstract concepts like time or so on, but they did so in a way that folded time into a representation of a divinity and so on. And I think that's a shame. I think the question of how we would go about studying in a de-Hegelianized way uh, culture-bound philosophical commitments is difficult, but 
this is part of a package of prejudices that we've inherited. Other prejudices are older. And one thing I'm hoping to be able to get back to today is the prejudice that's concerned me for a long time that is so widespread, so ubiquitous that we almost never even notice it. And you're going to look at me like I'm changing the subject of what the history of philosophy is all about when I mention it. It's the anti-rural prejudice. But let me show you what I mean by this. And I'll just give you two brief quotes. One is from Giambattista Vico's New Science of 1710. Uh, he says, first the woods, then the farmed fields and huts, then little houses and villages, cities, and finally, academies and philosophers. This, Vico says, is the order of progress from the first origins. So for Vico, this is where things have been headed ever since the nomads first settled down in the first settlements at the end of the last ice age, right? Um, towards universities with philosophy departments in them. That's an astounding way to wrap things up. And you might think that this is a conceit of the modern period, but let me give you another quote from Plato's Phaedrus. This is Socrates talking, who says, Socrates, I love to learn. Now, Socrates goes on, the fields and trees have nothing to teach me, but I learn only from men in the city. Right? So very early on, we get a conception of what philosophy is as a distinctly urban activity that removes from the horizon of our view everything that belongs to the natural world. And obviously, many people are going to say, well, yeah, but you can't talk to trees. Let's get realistic. And maybe you can't talk to trees. Maybe the Druid priests thought you could talk to trees, uh, but you can certainly learn from trees. And so, so the way this exclusion happened and the subsequent uh, implications of it for the way we understand philosophy, I think are huge. Thank you. I mean, one thing you've, you've both noted, I think, is this tendency of philosophy at different points to separate itself from other disciplines or modes. Mm. I mean, how, how important is this sort of purifying impulse in this history? Is, is it central? Certainly. I mean, obviously, if we're just looking at our own career trajectories, I've often had the feeling, indeed, that philosophy as a discipline is extremely jealous of its boundaries, almost to the point where once you stop monitoring the boundaries, once the boundary policing part of philosophy is abandoned, it's not really clear what's left over. Um, so that it's a discipline that defines itself by saying, those guys over there, what they're doing, that's not philosophy. <laughs> and I don't know, and this is a huge question that maybe other people can jump in on. I don't know to what extent that preoccupation is a consequence of the distinctly modern disciplinarization of philosophy that in the form we know it really only, only takes hold in the 19th century. 
um, with the foundation of the modern university as we know it. Uh, I don't know how much this boundary policing is simply an effect of disciplinarization and indeed how much you could also reach further back and find it in antiquity. While I identified a certain prejudice or a certain kind of bounding off of the activity in Socrates, what I will say is that reading early modern historiographers of philosophy, like Gassendi and Brücke, whom I've already mentioned, you see a vastly more kind of liberal and open, flexible conception of what philosophy is than uh, certainly I had uh, ingrained into my head as an undergrad in an analytic philosophy department. Thanks. Julia, do you want to jump in? Um, yeah, I think, you know, just touching on um, both what Jonathan and Justin said about the sort of narrative of the Greek miracle as the inception of what we consider as philosophy, I think it's really inter um, interesting and important to bear in mind also the specific properties of this load-bearing term, you know, philosophy, as we're using it in this discussion, also in, in the concept of the larger discussion about what a historiography of philosophy is. Because I think as both of you have um, I already pointed to, like the object we call philosophy bears with a certain uh, assumption, assumptions about how it's constructed and also what lends it specifically the quality of its pure transmissibility through time while also retaining its essential elements of being universally valid, of being applicable, of being therefore generative of human civilization. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, quite apart then from sort of specific institutional or social or cultural practices of historiography, there's therefore also the additional question of how we even arrive at such a notion of an object that is transmissible because it is pure, because it's ideal and universally valid, somehow standing outside of historical transformation, but then also therefore standing for the very horizon of what historical progress is supposed to look at, look like. Mm -hmm. And this, of course, is a question that Edmund Husserl asks in 1935, right, in his, in a lecture that he, that's entitled Philosophy and the Crisis of European Humanity. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, um, in, in this lecture, what he does is, is discuss his idea that we have such an idea of an irre irreversible transformation of human civilization. So human history as deriving from the Greek miracle and specifically though from the Greek invention of the system of ideal objects and deductive reasoning that they attach the term geometry to. So far from being like a specific discipline, right? Geometry for, for in, in Husserl's considerations, um, it's not, it's also uh, specifically an invention of a set of like these infinite objects that can be manipulated by the finite means of human reason, but and yet also retaining and in fact insisting on universal validity through their manipulation by finite reason. And in the words of Jacques Derrida, who of course famously publishes an extended commentary to a related essay of Husserl's on the origin of geometry, therefore what Husserl identifies is how the invention of this kind of system of ideal infinite objects that he calls geometry, that, that the Greeks call geometry, leads to a new conception altogether of human civilization as the infinite realization of human knowledge and values, and in short, as historical. So really the inception of the whole idea of history begins, if you will, through this idea of the construction of like philosophy as the set of like ideal objects that pertain to horizon of historicizability 
and yet also stand outside of historicizability itself. What's interesting, of course, with, with what Derrida does with this idea is, of, um, is that, well, given this paradoxical notion of philosophy as sort of like both the ideal object and also the horizon of historicity, what we have to do is abandon the whole idea of origin altogether. And specifically what this means is like abandon the idea of origin in as much as we have to think philosophy as having a vocation. So in as much as we have to think philosophy is the pursuit of truth, that has a point that as you say, like we can learn something from trees rather than not, right? We actually have to abandon the whole idea that there is an origin, that is to say, there's actually an intentional act, a present, a present intentional act attached to the origination of a discipline. And so, you know, the, dig, the deeper you dig or the more pressure you apply to the whole idea of a historicity of philosophy, the more you have to abandon the idea of a unicity of an origin, mm -hmm. that there is one narrative, that there's one developmental progress, right, in terms of human endeavor, and that there's something maybe other than the Greek idea of this infinite horizon of an emergence of human knowledge. I, I'm, I'm very struck by the way that um, all of us have somehow been thinking about this idea of philosophy as an effort to keep itself pure and to exclude whatever it is, rurality or druids or <laughs> whoever. And I, I think it may be a bit more complicated than that. Well, certainly, I remember when I, it was an enormous revelation to me when I started reading Hegel, having been trained in a, well, having been brought up to think that Hegel was just complete nonsense. And it was a revelation to me to find, I mean, what I thought was wonderful about Hegel was that he thought that everything is historical and that you have to understand all ideas as part of history and not only other people's ideas but your own as well and I think that is indeed a fantastic achievement of Hegel and I want, want us all to salute him for that and in a way he didn't keep philosophy pure or at least it was in a very subtle way I mean he did think that philosophy connected with art with religion that all of these things were as he said they developed from the same root wasn't that there was cause and effect between different spheres of, of, of culture, but he did think that philosophy was the most important of them because philosophy was the one that really reflected conceptually on things which in religion and natural science and the arts were being developed imaginatively. So philosophy was sort of holding these things together, but philosophy was deeply implicated in every other aspect of human life. And I think, uh, I mean, in that respect, I think there's something that we need to hang on to in Hegel. But the other aspect of it was that, in a way, he did narrow things down, kept the Druids out. He wasn't interested in any of these pre-Socratic, you know, Plato was really where it all started. And what's more, I think, I think Justin touched on this, that for 18th century historians of philosophy, they might well think that you needed to study texts in Hebrew and Arabic and mm -hmm. Spanish. And, and suddenly, I mean, we, from the our monoglot point of view think how amazing that Hegel could speak Latin and Greek but I think people of an earlier generation would think only Latin and Greek uh, what's wrong with him uh, so there was a tremendous narrowing there was this idea of everything in culture being connected which Hegel did have very firmly a hold of it's it's significant to think about also not just the inclusion of barbarians druids and Scythians and so on but also in 
pre-Hegelian historiography of philosophy, the shout-outs, as it were, that are routinely given to archaic-era sages, including the figures of the, of the seven wise men in Greek literature, but also beyond Greece, mythical figures like Atlas, for example, who was supposedly a mathematician and an African and the source of African learnedness. And this effort to extend back into the dark abyss of time, back into the shadowy origins of things, a kind of learning that we today, whether we're Greeks or 17th century figures, no longer have access to. Mm. That concern is abandoned as we move along in the modern period. And this abandonment is of a piece with the general shift from an idea of gradual degeneration or post-lapsarianism to an idea of progress, right? We don't need to dwell on how smart Solon was uh, uh, or how, uh, or how uh, wise the Egyptians were when, in any case, few or no monuments are accessible to us and we've got plenty of immediate problems to work out. So uh, this cutting off of the archaic period is, I think, a very significant move in the history of the historiography of philosophy as well. Yeah, okay, but enter Nietzsche. Mm. See, I mean, Zoroaster was always somewhere in the background of these, uh, of these ancient histories of philosophy, and he did, of course, revive. Yeah. Zarathustra, I mean, not on the basis of anything except his own imagination, of course. Sure, 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 sure. It sure. was a clever move of Nietzsche's to take that name uh, and try. Yeah, and but this, this is this is though is revival rather than continuity, right? Revival yeah, okay. for explicitly imaginative purposes, right? But point taken. But I think there's also a moment where such aspects of revival also contain. I guess for a want of a better term, like liberatory moment mm -hmm. in the historiography mm -hmm. of philosophy. So that, you know, I wouldn't say like exactly a return to a Lepsarian narrative of decline as opposed to narrative of progress, but like to uncover, for instance, senses of the erasures that lie mm -hmm. at the bottom of the historiography mm -hmm. of philosophy. So just in my own field of research, my Walter Benjamin clearly is like someone who's thought a lot like deeply about this. He was an avid reader of Husserl. He was not a Hegelian. So I guess, you know, in terms of like company, he's like, he's well placed, but, you know, famously in his origin um, of the German Tauschbiel, he, he, he talks about philosophical doctrine as resting on historical codifications uh, on, on writing, but that therefore, yeah. in spite of any attempt to sort of like say, philosophy's origin is based in this idea a geometrical idea essentially of like erasing the problem of presentation of writing nevertheless it has to be equally based on mm -hmm. the equally valid position that maybe the mathematician in doing mathematics actually has renounced the truth of writing mm -hmm. and so therefore you know he, he eventually then goes on to talk about the origin the idea of the origin as thoroughly historical as opposed to purely logical in, as a category as sort of you know designating not some sort of first intentional act but rather the origination of something in both becoming and passing away mm -hmm. of course you know some of the you know most famous very quotable moments of Benjamin all pertain to this kind of moment right histories you know <laughs> you know written by the victor and other barbarians etc but I mean what's interesting also so is that 
Benjamin's an avid reader of Nietzsche as well. And Nietzsche is clearly a huge influence in the early 20th century mm. and you know, amongst many different camps. And one of the interesting sort of camps where Nietzscheanism and Nietzsche's, uh, Nietzscheism sort of like encamps, if you will, is within like the German Jewish context. Mm -hmm. And I think what is important is that, you know, these moments of fantastic sort of revivalism or like reconstructions of figures independently of say texts like evidentiary archives is a sort of sense that there needs to be a reckoning a new reckoning of a dual character of the very category of origination. You know, to just, you know, simplify this a little bit more, it's just like there's one example. People like Benjamin in this period are starting to account for the origin of origin in the archives of German imperialism. Mm -hmm. So where they're, they're at least questioning or raising the question, they're raising the specter of having the bases of their conceptual histories be based on an unacknowledged debt to imp Western imperialisms. Mm -hmm. And this happens in subtle ways, but if you look at origin of uh, German Tauschbier, but also One Way Streets, which are written in the through the course of the 20s, objects of colonial exploits are everywhere. They take on the guise of commodities, right? They take on the guise of products of global capitalism, but they're also the fruits of colonial exploitation and they're everywhere. And if you read through that lens and you reread how Benjamin's writing through that lens of having these objects register under the guise of capitalism, but ultimately trackable back to say the Spanish conquest mm. and um, sort of ger belated German and French imperialisms in Mesoamerica, for example, you get a very different picture of like what that whole interrogation of how do, you know, what is a history of a philosophy um, might, might look like. I want to come back to these questions of transmissibility and transmission and translation that have been sort of drifting in and out while you've been talking. How significant are those questions? To what extent have particular moments of transmission or failures of transmission sort of influenced the history of philosophy as we've been talking about or as we've received it? Um, maybe, maybe Jonathan? I think transmission is an incredibly mischievous and difficult kind of word because it makes it sound as though you're just transferring a content from one mind to another. And I think that one of the curious functions of histories of philosophy since Hegel, as I said, they tend to put the individual philosophers in the background and say what we're really talking about is their systems and not their, you know, the individual artistry in them is nothing to do with their content as philosophies. And this goes on in historians of philosophy who consider themselves to be as unhegelian as could be, such as obviously Bertrand Russell is the monumentally successful historian of philosophy in the 20th century. And in a way, he's exactly like Hegel in that he thinks you don't really have to try very hard to understand what an individual philosopher was up to, what their problems were, because you know what the overall scheme is and you just fit them into it. A lot of people have read books like Russell's History of Philosophy as their introduction to philosophy. You know, people think, oh, I need to know something about philosophy, so I'll get to teach yourself philosophy or teach yourself the history of philosophy or maybe Bertrand Russell. And I think this is a terrible scam that is being carried out because what they, they give you the impression of philosophy being this sort of finished product, which, you know, a great pantheon where you may be invited to kneel down. You know, it's a spectator sport. It's not a participating activity. And 
people start to substitute the history of philosophy summary for the actual complexities of the text which register an individual's struggle with problems. So people will say, oh, well, of course I know what Marxism is about. It's about dialectical materialism. And I know what dialectic is, I know what materialism is, and so there we have it. And the fact that, you know, those words don't occur in the whole corpus of Marx anywhere is forgotten. And so the summary gets in the way of actually reading the text. And well, transmission can be a form of popularization. Russell, we're always told, he does get on my nerves, this guy, I must say. Russell, we're always told, was a great communicator. He had enabled everybody to understand what Western philosophy was all about. Well, I think there's something very deceptive about this whole gesture of popularization. There's a whole structure behind it where you, the reader, position yourself as the ignorant person. Russell, the genius, the most brilliant man in the history of the world, has read all these books for you. He can summarize them. He can make jokes about them in a way that you could never dream of doing yourself. And so you feel, instead of the transmission of philosophy, the popularization of philosophy, giving you access to it, it has precisely the opposite effect. It makes you feel as though it's something in which you can play no role at all. Only geniuses like Russell who understand these books and do their best to simplify them for your own hopeless intellect. They understand it, but you don't. So I think the histories of philosophy are part of the story of the transmission of philosophy and the popularization of philosophy. And I believe that these efforts have been quite sinister and extremely counterproductive. Down with the history of philosophy. Julia, I guess jumping on the idea of like, you know, transmissibility as a problem, I think and also going back to, I think, Justin's point about how philosophy constitutes itself on the basis of policing its boundaries. One of the questions you have to raise is like, you know, what's admissible as an object through which philosophy gets transmitted? And I think, you know, if we start raising the question of sort of the imperialisms or the various types of other exploitation on which any sort of archive is based, you start having to also ask the question of what has been admissible as philosophy and what has been excluded from the domain of philosophy on the basis of the fact that it's not written in some way, that there's no documentation in written form. It's a prejudice, obviously, against, you know, you know, it hues to like this, this very racist distinction between like civilized peoples that have some facility with language, facility with code <laughs> versus those who simply grunt and have no language or simply can vocalize. A more advanced version of this is simply to say, well, only sort of documentation in, in that huge particular genre and a notion of a kind of clarity that maybe can be distilled in essay question format, if you will, right, yeah. can count as the discipline of philosophy in as much as can like perpetuate itself. If you start admitting other types of thought, then you run in very immediately into the problem of like, well, look, Sometimes thought gets expressed in poetic language. Sometimes thought gets expressed in visual images. What do you do with those kinds of things? Are they automatically excluded because they don't formulate thought in terms of a kind of neat syllogism, but rather force you to engage with language, for example? One of the areas that I've been sort of thinking about in which this question has been uh, raised quite explicitly is like, the relationship between uh, Chinese philosophy and modern Jewish, uh, modern German Jewish philosophy, Taoism, for instance, famously the classic texts are written in verse form or like some kind of prose poetic form. Also, if you think about what Taoism quote unquote is, 
it's not just philosophy or a system of thought. It's also a way of life. It's also a highly ritualistic form of worship. And it's also a martial art. I mean, what are you going to do with martial arts <laughs> in the context of like, you know, Bertrand Russell's history of philosophy, for instance? I mean, how do you fit that in? Or do you, do you always have to sort of like make a caveat for including this in the idea of philosophy? And what does it mean to transmit something through a form that is ephemeral? Which is another, you know, a question that is um, is worthy of being raised, especially when you know what what we're concerned with is uh, archives that have undergone erasure necessarily. So you know, erasures can take the form of translation as well. So for instance, the, the Taoist texts that sort of circulated in the 19th century and the early 20th century, which became important for a whole slew of really important thinkers like not you know Benjamin, but also Martin Buber, Hans Rosenzweig, uh, Max Weber, Brecht and Kafka, obviously, a group of people who were like engaged in the early 20th century with critiques of political economy and also. Um, philosophy of Jewish life. They're all reading Taoist texts in translation. Martin Buber famously translates a couple of Taoist texts with the help of a Chinese native informant who's sometimes named, sometimes not named. None of these people know Chinese, for example. But to what extent are these authentic or inauthentic? Do we not maybe have to talk about, you know, translation as its own mode of philosophizing? And German, you know, in this case, like German Taoism as a, its own form of Taoist thinking that sort of generates its own conceptual histories. Um, Justin, I wonder whether you want to come in here. Yeah, I have a lot to say in response to a lot of what's been going on about writing, uh, and also there's a, a question in the Q&A concerning Indian philosophy that I'd like to get to. Uh, now, uh, in 1704, Leibniz, Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, writes that once we've exhausted the project of philology, studying all the ancient he Greek, Hebrew, Sanskrit, Chinese texts, uh, our real project of uh, the human sciences will have only just begun because natural language is the most ancient and comprehensive monument of mankind, so says Leibniz. And this is in some respect Leibniz's clarion call to send people out collecting samples of not unwritten languages, in particular in his case across the Arctic Circle and throughout the Russian Empire. Now what is happening here, Leibniz for his part sees this as part of a mass scale project of, so to speak, applied philosophy. But it's also, of course, the birth of what will soon enough be called ethnography and ethnology. And also for Leibniz, it's part of a missionary project, a two-way street of both getting knowledge, but also imposing new regime of knowledge, if you want to call it that. Of course, the missionary project eventually also gets folded into full-fledged colonialism. Now, that's all very significant, I think, when we're talking about different forms of transmission, because indeed, I've been studying now for a while oral cultures that, that transmit knowledge intergenerationally through epic poetic tradition, and there are certain respects in which this is not just as solid a mechanism of transmission, but more solid than writing. We know that writing is distinctive and special for some things. Anthropologists like Jack Goody have been able to show how simple practices of list making in antiquity are connected 
to the emergence of such things as Aristotle's table of opposites, right? And beginning to contrast and oppose and negate and so on requires a kind of conceptual representation that writing provides and oral epic poetry doesn't. At the same time, some of the traditions that we are prepared to recognize as philosophical par excellence have receded from writing in interesting ways. Notably in Greece, everybody's favorite philosopher, again, the philosopher par excellence, Socrates, didn't write. And that is a very curious irony about the Western tradition that I think is not noted nearly enough. Now, in the case of Indian philosophy, and here I'm replying to a question from an anonymous attendee, there's something very interesting going on. For many centuries, in many contexts of the very diverse history of thought on the Indian subcontinent, writing was considered an unfortunate prosthetic for weak minds only, right? You revert to writing when your head just isn't good enough to memorize uh, everything that ideally would be stored in here, right? And so there are many works that for many centuries did not exist in written form. And it was a kind of de degradation when they were finally written down. And in part, it's for this reason that if you take a sutra, for example, of, say, some orthodox school of uh, philosophy like the Nyaya school or Mimamsa, and you translate it into English, you're just going to think, what is this? this? This isn't a treatise. This doesn't count. This isn't giving me an argument. And the reason is because it has a whole legacy behind it of oral communication between guru and disciple, where the most important goal is simply to store within one's own mind, within one's own memory, a system of, so to speak, mnemonic devices that you can then later unfold from your own memory in a way that helps you grasp an entire body of knowledge. Right, And so this background in orality gives an outsider the impression of just utter impenetrability. But again, it's because a sutra is not an argument. So there are all sorts of ways in which orality and textuality are interwoven. And again, just to conclude, I think that each has its own specificities and its own strengths, but there's absolutely no reason to suppose that the traditions that transmit knowledge intergenerationally through written traces are in any way superior. Who says they are? Well, I've had some colleagues. <laughs> um, hey. I've had some hate mail. <laughs> that says something more or less along those lines. Was it you, Justin, or oh, I'm not sure who's referred to a sort of packet of prejudices that we carry with us. And obviously one of them you've just raised is this idea that we think that philosophy has to be about advancing an argument. Of discourse that don't do that are, are not philosophical and are implicitly in some way inferior. I wonder if we can draw more on this idea of the sort of packet of prejudices and what that consists of and how we can move away from that. Is it just about reading differently, thinking differently, and opening ourselves to different traditions. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's really hard because I, I think the idea that philosophy must be a provisioning of arguments, uh, the, the idea that that's a prejudice is a kind of resting for me on a deeper commitment that any attempt to define philosophy will work for no more than a specific moment in a specific context, and then it will slip away, right? You just can't do it. And so you might say, philosophy is giving arguments, or Wittgenstein might say philosophy is showing the fly out of the bottle, or Deleuze might say philosophy is coining concepts. And, you know, yeah, it works in the moment, but then someone else can always come along and take some other text, for example, that has been canonically received as philosophy and say, well, this isn't an argument, this is an aphorism, or, or, or this is a fragment of a poem from Parmenides, or all sorts of other possibilities for non-argumentative philosophy that even the most conservative and cautious wagon circlers are already prepared to take as philosophy, right? And so the problem of definition is one that is insurmountable, I think. I think you're making rather heavy weather of this. Just, I mean, it seems to <laughs> I me, could be, yeah. You know, philosophy is a word that people have applied to a specific tradition of thinking. And I know some people, maybe Hegel thinks that it's the greatest form of thinking that human beings are capable of. But mm. if we disagree with that, then we can just say, well, there are millions of forms of thinking and yeah. philosophy is one of them. There's millions of forms of music. The classical string quartet is one of them. That doesn't mean what's not a classical string quartet is not. I mean, it seems to me that you're both trying to uh, deflate the yeah. pretensions of philosophy, but also taking them too seriously at the same time. <laughs> philosophy is just a word for a very local tradition that was made up in the 17th century in Europe, and it has its virtues and it has its and it has its blind spots that there are millions of other traditions yeah. too. Don't take its self-importance too seriously. I agree, except for the cases where certain kinds of philosophy, let's say certain types of things that have been categorized as political philosophy or legal philosophy, have served to exploit other peoples mm -hmm. and also to completely erase them say by relegating them to myth or by tagging them to some real racialized history of yeah. some sort. And that's, I think, a really important distinction to make. Yes, of course, you know, there's like this broader disciplinary questions like, why are we all taking philosophy so seriously as like the queen of all the sciences? I mean, why, do, why don't we just regard that as a myth, right? Versus when sometimes the category of philosophy has been applied specifically to undercut, say, versions of forms of other kinds of life, right, in service of the perpetuation of something that then gets authorized as philosophy, as legal philosophy. I have a specific example in mind, which is like, you know, the arrival of the modern conception of the rule of law. The idea that like there's a transition between a state of nature, of a people from a state of nature to a civil state, right, that's peaceful, can also be seen as a pacification of the people on the basis of the erasure of the indigenous right to self-defense. And this is sort of logged also in sort of contemporaneous ethnographic accounts or ethnological mm -hmm. accounts of, say, the Spanish conquest, for example, in Mesoamerica, in the context of sort of German, like especially German ethno uh, ethnology um, in the early 20th century, for instance, where people who were engaging in, like, so alongside people like Gustav Radbruch, or Hans Kelsen or Carl Schmidt, there are also these other more historically minded legal philosophers thinking maybe without realizing it, right, about this distinction between like a myth and a history 
in the context of how, you know, turning an instance of suppression into a philosophy by dint of historicizing it actually ends up sort of eradicating a right of self-defense and making it punishable even by, by the death penalty in the name of civilization, in the name of a his, like, historical progress. Mm. I, I appreciate Jonathan's pushback, and I want to try to respond. I want to try to say from a different angle than Julia, maybe in a way that's kind of complementary to what Julia has already said. Um, once I was at a table trying to recruit new students to, the, to study philosophy in Montreal, and a First Nations person from the Kanatake Reserve near Montreal uh, was talking to me, and he said, well, you know, we've got our own philosophy. And I was not as reflective back then as I wish I were, because I admit I kind of had an instinctive, no, you don't sort of attitude. You've got something else, but it's not philosophy. I didn't say that, but I felt a kind of inability to pursue the question further. But it's a big question. It's a big question because everybody in the world, for complicated historical reasons, now perceives philosophy as a cultural good, right? And, uh, or at least this guy, this, this guy did, and this guy considered it a meaningful way of opposing his world to my world, right? Like you think you have philosophy to bring me? Well, let me tell you something else. I've got philosophy already from my ancestors and from my culture, right? And that's an important moment of confrontation that we need to figure out how to confront. And you know, now that I've been working on African philosophy for a couple of years, I've uh, encountered, and I'm not joking about the hate mail, I've encountered a really blatant racist. I mean, it's a bit like Saul Bellow's riff on show me the Zulu of the Tolstoys, or sorry, the Tolstoy of the Zulus, and I'll read him. I've heard so many variations on that, show me the Hegel of Africa, and I'll read him. And when you try to articulate the complexity of the problem and why there's not someone in Africa who's doing exactly the same thing Hegel is doing in exactly the same way, you start to get into these metaphilosophical questions of what philosophy is and whether it really is a cultural good that everybody should be claiming to have. Just to make one final point in this regard, uh, some colleagues uh, here in Paris, I can think of Anne Chang, for example, at the Collège de France, are interested in the 19th century construction of the idea of Chinese philosophy. I'm somewhat more familiar with the Japanese case, the coinage of the neologism Tetsugaku to describe something that did not exist before. There's a, something comparable in China and involve, it involves a disciplinarization, a cutting off of numerous practices, a cutting off of calligraphy, for example, from the practice of mastering a body of knowledge that disfigures what it was people had been doing as the cost, as the price of being able to say, we're doing philosophy here too now, right? And so what An Cheng has said is you Europeans might think that it is praise to say that China has something easily identifiable as its philosophy. 
but it might also be an expression of arrogance to suppose that philosophy is a cultural good that every culture must either have or wish it had, right? Well, I, I, I still think maybe we're making a bit of heavy weather about this. Why can't we just say that philosophy is a word that's used in Europe a lot to describe a method of thinking that they think is terribly important, uh, and they're probably wrong about how important it is. What's really important is that people should think for themselves, and that obviously happens in every possible continent, in every possible culture, and, mm. uh, and we don't need to apply the word philosophy to it. But okay, but the problem there is that you 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 start to get really close to the people you set out trying to argue against, which is these colleagues I can think of, like the conservative Eurocentric types who think that philosophy is a proper name that designates something that descends from Greece and nothing but well, right. And, it, and it's, so it's fine to say that and then be modest about it. Yeah, you. I mean, it could. Yeah, I mean, maybe if you if you think of it as a proper name, then it just it solves the problem, right? Okay, I want to bring in some some uh, questions from the audience. I like this one about dialogue because I'm really interested in philosophical dialogue as a, as a genre. Um, but the question is, can you talk about the role or the value of dialogue in the ongoing development of philosophy, as opposed to a sequence of great individual thinkers? Does it still count if it's collaborative? I would have thought all philosophy is dialogical. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that actually, and, and the one, one thing that some histories of philosophy do relatively well is that they do think that each philosopher is involved in conversations directly or indirectly with others and that it's actually out of the dialogue that learning will come but maybe I've missed something of what the questioner is really getting at. Yeah I mean even even if you're writing about Hegel or Aristotle you're in some sense dialoguing with them, dialoguing with the mm. dead so there's no escape from it <laughs> but the question might be more about writing in the form of a dialogue like yeah. Plato's dialogues. Well I think the question is about the sort of fetishization of particular thinkers and sometimes the tendency to separate them from from their histories I suppose or those dialogical histories mm. Um, mm -hmm. I want to move on okay another big question how do some of the considerations you have raised i.e the devaluing of oral traditions and the idea that secondary texts such as Russell's act as a barrier to philosophical engagement affect how you think philosophy should be taught in universities I mean, I teach primarily in my, my, my teaching is done in a literature department. So I think, you know, just by virtue of my existence as a teacher, I sort of maybe demonstrate how the boundaries are necessarily fluid for me. And also, I mean, I think that I'm very much committed to the idea that philosophy, however you want to define it now, you know, but, you know, um, philosophical thinking and modes of argumentation can be extracted not only from a sort of pantheon of thinkers that has some bookshop has sought to canonize in, in an anthology, but also have share very fluid boundaries with say considerations of literariness and writing and genre and like questions of form and so mm. forth. So as a matter of fact, just do it. That's <laughs> sort of like my day job. <laughs> like basically there's a singular, I mean, I think, you know, there's a singularity attached to literary text, for example, that maybe isn't at the foreground of, say, how one would treat a philosophical text. 
but that brings up interesting questions about what we sort of think in is you know the the basis of validity for example and transmissibility in terms of the philosophical text that its proximity to literary concerns uh, actually sort of raises so is the answer then not to read philosophy as philosophy to read philosophy as any kind of text and examine it in those kind of ways i think that it's important to preserve some element of the friction between different kinds of texts and different modes of like sort of transmissions of ideas and what that does to ideas and their authorizations as ideas. So no, it's from, I mean, I don't think it's um, necessarily productive to sort of homogenize everything or like flatten everything, you know, to everything as text um, necessarily, but there are different modes of inquiry that texts and different, you know, modes of inquiry that are attached to sort of disciplinary cl classifications as well that are fruitful for discussion. I think there's something terribly contradictory about the vocation of being a philosophy teacher, because mm. if I'm right, then, you know, philosophy is about teaching, you know, getting individual students to think for themselves. Yeah. And if you stand up at the lectern and say, now, these are the following ways in which you can think for yourselves, you've already completely lost it. Yeah. Um, and there is this terrible thing that happens in university philosophy, particularly, that people become experts on various texts, and they can mm. talk about them very cleverly. And you think they've never actually struggled with a philosophical problem in their life. Mm. And I find Wittgenstein exemplary in this respect. He had such a active conscience as a philosophy teacher and he, he basically thought that whenever he tried to teach it went wrong and he had this very good statement that he made to his students once he said do not try to be intelligent because if you try to be intelligent then you're really going to stop thinking you're going to be clever but you're not going to really uh, start re-examining your ideas and it's very hard I got out of philosophy teaching ages ago because I couldn't hack it but I think that's the rule don't try to be intelligent I think I agree a bit with both of you. I, I, I think it's impossible to teach philosophy. It's a contradiction in terms to suggest such a thing. But what you can do is help people to, to discover their own interests, right? Mm -hmm. And there, in kind of uh, complement to what Julia has said, I think about my own work specializing in the history of early modern philosophy, mostly. There's someone who makes me so angry every time I think of him. Should I name him? Yeah, why not? I'll name him Jonathan Bennett, who has done what he calls translations of Hume. Yeah. That is, translations of Hume into English. What does he do? He cleans their stuff up. He changes the spelling. He eliminates weird old words uh, and replaces them with words that students can understand. In my experience, what made me fall in love with the 17th century is precisely that it was mm. weird, yeah. right? That it was a foreign country. Uh, if I was reading English texts, they had words that were spelled in weird ways or that don't exist anymore. Yeah. And it's not a guarantee that that's going to appeal to someone, but I, I really do believe that part of the possible hook for philosophy, when we're talking about the history of philosophy, is not to try to make it relatable, but on the contrary, to highlight its strangeness. I think that's absolutely right. And on the subject of Jonathan Bennett and other people who simplify people for you, usually the object of the exercise is that you can see what complete idiots these people were and how <laughs> self-contradictory they were. And I just, it's so disrespectful. I don't think there's any other discipline. I mean, a teacher of poetry isn't going to say, oh, look at how stupid Wordsworth is and what about bloody Coleridge <laughs> yeah. and Heiner, yeah. Jesus. 
one of the curious things about the history of philosophy, we think of it as trying to create this pantheon of excellence, pantheon of excellence, but actually all historians of philosophy say, oh, well, you know, they were all wrong. You know, in fact, there's no reason why someone who's not a philosopher should feel sad to be excluded from the canon of great philosophers, because from Kant onwards, to be in the canon is to be condemned for being an idiot. Let's take another question. Um, are we absolutely sure that philosophy's story started only in the time and culture of ancient Greece and not earlier, in some way that simply doesn't fit our strict definition of what philosophy is, and thus we exclude them? Or maybe we simply don't have any records of philosophy before ancient Greece. Well, I'd be very deflationary about it and say, well, philosophy is a word that people started applying to things in ancient Greece. Yeah. That doesn't mean that what happened before wasn't intellectually valuable and perhaps intellectually even more valuable. But yeah. I, I mean, I, I think people just again and again, I think people are just getting rather over anxious about Wait. what's just yeah. a word. We know the first occurrence of the term, or at least the agentive form of the term of philosopher, uh, it's in a fragment of Heraclitus. And what's interesting to note, it's being used there in a tone of mockery, right? A false elevation of a person to call them a philosophos, right? And that's a very significant fact as well, I think. Philosophy is born in mockery. I was just going to say something about, you know, beyond the Western canon or beyond the, you know, the obviously very Western understanding attached to the word philosophy, um, you know, there's also the question of what do people do when they sort of teach or like, you know, try to consider what philosophy is outside of the Western tradition, sometimes predating, obviously, Heraclitus, etc. And especially when it's wrapped up with other, you know, forms of practice, right? As I was saying earlier, like what to do with martial arts, you know, in, in terms of, it, or calligraphy, which is also yeah. extremely physical as a gestural sort of, you know, idea. Yeah. In the Anglophone sphere, I think this entrance or the, the the entry of Chinese philosophy into the canon of philosophy as we understand it in the West has also been, you know, indebted to a process of translation and simplification and sort of quarreling into this sort of easily digestible notion of like what you know, how to how to extract from this extremely complex set of practices something like an idea. So I guess for me, the question is, yeah, you want to make something legible in a different language. I guess there's something inevitable about the process of translation that's needed. And at the same time, paying close attention to the untranslatability as mm -hmm. like a mode of philosophizing, quote unquote, right? You know, and being careful about the interstices mm -hmm. in which then new sort of new, new questions can arise is, is pretty important. A connected question, which is sort of linking to that. Um, so on the relevance of Arabian or Middle Eastern philosophy, does geographical location as well as time period affect the transmission or the ability to transmit philosophies? Interestingly there, um, the word for philosophy in Arabic is a borrowing from Greek, right? So if you have this restrictive conservative definition of what philosophy is that we've talked about already, then the history of Arabic Islamic philosophy makes the cut without question because it is a continuation of Greek philosophy. Now, uh, there are earlier pre-existing practices, the Kalam tradition of disputation concerning Quranic interpretation, but then that gets supplemented with arguments from Aristotle and others early on. And obviously that has to do with geographical uh, proximity that South Asia and East Asia did not have to Greece. Um, and so it's an example of the contingency of who is neighboring whom that determines what form philosophy will take. 
I think we've got time for one last question. Um, so returning to the discussion about boundary policing, uh, to what extent do you think that the lines between philosophy and non-philosophy, or perhaps wisdom, were drawn along racial lines? That is, was the strict policing of what counts as philosophy in some sense about protecting the distinctiveness of philosophy as a discipline, or was it also about highlighting the cultural superiority of Europeans over non-Europeans? Yeah, there's a couple of things. I mean, insofar as we're abiding by certain categories through which to admit something as philosophy or not philosophy, I think there's inevitably a pacification of certain like native modes of or indigenous modes of thinking, right? Um, so I guess historically the archive of non-Western philosophies, like say the Chinese philosophy that arrives in the West is through the words and also the worldviews of Christian missionaries who landed in China for a number of different reasons, ranging all the way obviously to the early Republican era. So like the early 20th century and beyond, they were there to transmit ideas from the Orient, from the East, in the service of a greater edification of the European project to, to a degree, but then also to, to different degrees, um, serving the project of civilizing the rest of the world. I mean, this is a gross simplification, but I mean, yeah, I think, of course, there's an element of how the admission even of, say, certain forms of indigenous thinking, so in the case of Chinese, like, um, in Chinese philosophy, into the canon called philosophy, generally speaking, is inextricable from the history of missionary exploits in the rest of the world. Just one final question. This is for Jonathan, but I guess opens out to all of you about the history of philosophy and the idea of philosophy having become a kind of spectator sport. How do we or where should we start in engaging with philosophy if we are to move beyond uh, philosophy as a spectator sport? There's a phrase that I've been playing with for the last few months, which is the idea of wild philosophy, right? which I mean philosophy that takes place amongst people who have never heard the word philosophy, they've never heard of a philosophy book, but they, you know, they go out into a starry night and think, wow, or they they realise that the experience of, of love or friendship, of being absolutely focused on the existence of someone else, it's very hard to separate from thinking of the fact that that person is going to die sometime. I don't know, there's a, there's a wonderful Thomas Hardy poem about a little baby watching a bird by the river and a horse comes by and an ox comes by and the bird is very happy. And then a perfect gentleman comes by and the bird flies away. And says Thomas Hardy, the baby fell a thinking. And it seems to me that we need to get back to the idea of a baby falling a thinking rather than some scholar in a library who's read the complete works of Hegel. That sounds like a great note to finish on. Um, thank you all for joining us this evening. Thank you very much to our speakers. Please join us for our next event. Thank you.